0: amen i'll invite you to turn your bibles tonight to ephesians chapter 3 we've been talking about the holy spirit and different aspects of what jesus said that the holy spirit would do and here's another example from ephesians chapter 3 where paul is telling us by the spirit of god another facet or another aspect of the working of the holy spirit in our lives ephesians chapter 3 beginning in verse 14 he said paul said for this cause i bow my knees Under the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, some of the families already in heaven, and some of the families still left here on the earth, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice that phrase in verse 16 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might. I want to talk to you about strengthened with might for a little bit this evening. We know that the Old Testament is types and shadows gives us uh, information about what Jesus has done for us and fulfilled in us through his uh, substitutionary work on the cross. So turn back with me to the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. Now while you're turning there, the previous chapter tells us that Ahab became the king of Israel, and he was more wicked than anybody ever had been, any of the kings of Israel had been before him. It says, um, well let me just read one of the scriptures here to you to get give you an idea of how bad this guy was in verse 33 of first kings chapter 16 it says and abraham uh, and ahab made a grove talking about worship of uh, idols and ahab did more to provoke the lord god of israel to anger than all the kings of israel that were before him i don't know about you but i would expect that to be a bad place to be in chapter 17 verse 1 And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Elijah Elijah explodes onto the scene. We don't have any information about his past. We don't have any information about where he comes from or anything that happened before this event. We're not even sure what a Tishbite is. But he explodes on the scene, and he makes a declaration. Of course, it's inspired by the Holy Ghost, and of course, it's part of the prophet's office that he's participating in. But he just simply says, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan, And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before or near unto Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. I want to read the next couple of chapters to you about the life of Elijah and uh, the experiences that the Holy Ghost shared with us about God using him. Now, one of the things that, um, that I think we need to take notice of, there is among people of faith, and I'm not talking about just uh, the church world at large. In that sense, everybody is of faith if they've made Jesus the Lord of their lives. But I'm talking about among people who take faith And recognize it as a tool, as Jesus said, to change situations and circumstances in our lives. There seems to be the idea among many so-called faith people um, that if God's doing something, there should never be any interruption or a change in the circumstances. What I mean by that specifically is that a lot of people have the idea that if you're walking by faith, then things are always going to get better and better and better no matter what. And that's not always true. Elijah says to Ahab what God sent him to say. Certainly you would have to recognize that that was at the direction of the Lord. Nobody in their right mind is going to go to a king and say, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And because we don't know anything about the background or the backstory or any interactions between Elijah and and Ahab, there may have been a, a period of time where Ahab just thought that he was some crazy lunatic And didn't pay any attention to what he was saying. But this famine goes on for about three and a half years. So somewhere along the way he would certainly recognize this guy really was serious about what he said. And so he he is then directed. God gives him uh, the words to speak to the king first, to Ahab, about it not raining until he says so. And then God speaks to him individually and tells him how he's going to provide for him during the drought. And so he goes to a certain place, this brook Cherith, near the Jordan border, and he's brought flesh or meat in the mornings and the evenings by ravens, which are unclean birds. Elijah even touching these meats, whatever they were that the ravens brought him, would be contrary or a violation of the law of Moses. You know there are several times in the scriptures Jesus particularly was accused of the uh, the Jews for not washing their hands and going through the ritual cleansing that the law of Moses uh, commanded and the Jews the religious leaders were just aghast that someone that would claim to be a man of God or thought of the people to be a man of God would not keep the law of Moses to the strictest sense and to the letter and 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 I don't know how I should say that, the letter of the law. But Jesus wasn't bothered about that. Jesus identified a couple of things during his earthly ministry here that identified that the law was for the people and not the people for the law. In other words, Jesus never violated the spirit of the law, even though he may have violated one of the traditions of the elders. And so here's Elijah eating from the hands or the mouths, the beak of unclean animals day after day after day. Now, we don't know how long he was there, but he was there until the brook dried up. Now, you know as well as I do that God, who is all-powerful, could have kept that stream of water going even if there was nothing else in all of Israel. He could have created a situation where Elijah... Could have stayed there for the entirety of the famine. Never having to bother about moving anywhere. He could have kept the ravens and the brook going any number of ways if that's the way that he had chosen to do it. But it seems that a lot of people lose heart when things change. And God doesn't always meet our, our needs the same way every time. By that I mean the, the answer or the provision doesn't always come the same way every time. And, and that's, I've seen people over the years that let that throw them off too. For example, there may be a certain way that God worked healing in their bodies. Maybe they just prayed, didn't know much about faith, didn't know much about standing on or confessing the word, but they prayed and God in his mercy brought them healing. Well, in that situation, almost everybody that I've encountered with or have encountered, had any kind of interaction with, almost everybody that's in that situation has determined that that's the way that it has to work this time for whatever they need to be healed of or else they just won't have it. It's the hardest thing in the world to try to get people that have been in that situation where the mercy of God and the mercy of God alone has healed their bodies It's the hardest thing in the world to get those people trying to operate, to get them to operate by faith, to get them to confess the word because they trust in the experience that they had. And and I'm not throwing off on anybody's experience. Healings of God no matter how it comes. And I wouldn't take somebody's precious experience away from them for anything in the world, yet there's no guarantee that it'll work the same way every time for the rest of their lives whenever they need healing. So Elijah's got to make a change. The word of the Lord came unto him saying in verse 8, Arise and get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Notice that phrase, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. I have commanded. That indicates that something's already been done. Now you're going to find that the, the widow that he comes in contact with is certainly not a rich widow. She's in poverty herself, along with her son. And she doesn't seem to have any advanced information. There's nothing about the story that tells us that she's aware that any command has been made or that there's been any talk that God has had with her to provide for Elijah. I don't know what Elijah was expecting when God said, I've commanded the widow woman to sustain thee. thee." But I doubt it was what he came up with and what he found it to be. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I'm gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat and die. Now I want you to see what's on her agenda for the day. Find two sticks, use a handful of meal, and a few drops of oil in the bottle make a cake for her and her son, and then die. We could certainly recognize that her poverty has brought them to the point of death, or starvation at least. Now folks, I'm not sure even in the best circumstances what a handful of meal and a couple of drops of oil really makes. I haven't seen too many recipes where that's all there is to it. These are dire and desperate situations. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make it for you and your son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel. He's got to give her something to believe in. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Now, when did God tell him that? The only thing we have record of prior to this is that God told him where the widow woman was and that he's commanded her to sustain him. We certainly don't have any indication that Elijah knew there was going to be a woman gathering two sticks, which wouldn't make much of a fire under any circumstances. We don't have any indication, no way to know or to surmise that he knows about the bill and the oil. Could it have been when the woman said what she did about what she had. That was when the Lord spoke to him. And then he spoke it to her. As I said to give her something to believe in. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. No matter when it is or what, what covenant or anything else. So he gives her some instructions. She still has a, a, a right to deny what he said she doesn't owe him anything he doesn't seem to be anybody to her at least not yet she figures it out as she goes but she went and did according to the saying of elijah and she and he and her house did eat many days now however many of those days are we don't know exactly but as i said before the drought lasted, the drought and the famine lasted for about three and a half years. So whatever of that three and a half years he hasn't already spent at the brook Cherith being fed by ravens, that's how long this takes place. That's how many days it would have been. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the crews of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Elijah. Folks, I would submit to you that under drought conditions, severe famine conditions, this woman and her son were rich. See, prosperity is relative. For us and here in America, I'm sure there are certain cars that people would attach symbolism as the symbolism of prosperity whereas in Africa in the bush country of Africa maybe having a bike would mean the same as the most expensive car that you and I could buy prosperity is relative prosperity is provision and success prosperity is financial freedom not just finances but prosperity is financial freedom to the degree that you can obey whatever God tells you to do. We've all been in situations where we've seen offerings being taken up for something that is just a worthwhile, worthy project. And I'm sure that we've had similar situations or similar thoughts in those situations that if we could, we'd have paid for the whole thing, whatever it was. Well, why don't we? We don't have the means. But true prosperity is abundance to the degree that you can do whatever God tells you to do. Now, I'm not saying God has told us to do uh, what we might have on our heart to do, what we might decide that we would like to pay for the whole project or whatever. Just because we have a heart to do that doesn't necessarily mean that's what God wants us to do. But whatever he wants us to do, we should be in faith to a degree that we have the financial freedom to to be able to do that nothing is worse than not having the means to do something that God's put on your heart to do and a lot of times people would look at that and say well if God wants you to do it he'll make sure you have the funds for it well he may have already made the funds available to us but we wasted or squandered it away God's under no obligation to replace what we waste God's not a waster You remember when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He commanded uh, for the 5,000. He commanded the disciples to pick up the scraps. He's not a waster. Now what would he have done with those scraps? There wasn't any indication that they carried them around with them. Or gave out doggy bags. He probably sent some of the disciples to go give it to the poor. That's what he was wont to do. In most situations and circumstances. God's not a waster. And he won't help us have enough to waste either. He expects us to be good stewards of whatever we have. So by that definition, I think this widow woman and her son were rich. They're not rich because of the amount of food that they have. They're rich because they've got the hand of God on what they own. That sustains them. Verse 17 and it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman the mistress of the house the widow woman fell sick and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him and she said unto Elijah what have I to do with thee O thou man of God she's figured out that he's of God the meal and the oil never running out she recognizes that as a a miraculous event and of course since it came at the direction or the words of this man that she's feeding, of course she would come to the realization that he is a prophet or a man of God of some type. So she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode. And laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? Now, folks, at face value, that's real bad doctrine. God's not in the business of slaying people under the old covenant any more than he is slaying people under the new covenant. Jesus said the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Not God. God's not a killer. God doesn't participate in anything that does kill. God doesn't use sickness. God doesn't take people through sickness. God doesn't teach people through sickness. The Bible says God teaches people through his word. And only his word. I want you to realize something here, folks. The basics, the simplest part, of the doctrine we have because the Bible is progressive revelation which means people know more and more as God reveals more and more as time advances you know more about God than Elijah did and certainly Elijah's doctrine didn't have to be perfect for God to use him we get in our heads that everything has to be just so and just so perfect and right and on track and all that kind of stuff. It'll probably be funny. I hope it's funny that when we get to heaven, we'll see about the things that we were wrong. I hope it's something we can laugh about instead of being held in judgment for. So Elijah said, O Lord, my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord, And said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come unto him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came to him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house, and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Chapter 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all fountains of water, and unto all brooks. Peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. You can see how severe the famine is. And the famine is certainly caused by the drought. So they divided the land between them to pass throughout it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him, and fell on his face and said, Art thou that my Lord, Elijah? And Elijah answered him and said, I am. Go and tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah responded and said, What have I sinned? That thou would deliver me, deliver thy servant under the hand of Ahab to slay me. I want you to realize that Obadiah doesn't have a lot of confidence in Elijah either. Now that may just mean there's been very little interaction. We don't have much information about anything taking place, any miracles taking place or God using Elijah since the time he told Ahab that it wouldn't rain until he said so. There are certainly miraculous things that take place, but they're personal things. They're personal miracles. Nobody knew about the ravens feeding Elijah by the brook Cherith. Not many people knew, if any outside of the family, her family, about the widow woman and the meal and the oil. These are things that have happened, and they're certainly miraculous, but they haven't been public miracles. So there would be no reason for anybody to have much confidence in Elijah, unless there's a lot more to the story than what the Holy Ghost showed us, And that wouldn't make sense for him not to give us a record of it. So Obadiah doesn't have much confidence in Elijah either. All he knows is they've been looking for him for about three years and hadn't been able to find him. And so he says, again verse 9, Obadiah said, What have I sinned, that thou wouldst deliver thy servant under the hand of Ahab to slay me? As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whether my Lord has not sent to seek thee. He's been looking for you everywhere. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and the nation that they found thee not. He made everybody swear that they hadn't seen him and they weren't hiding him. And now thou sayest, go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass, this is Obadiah still talking. It shall come to pass that as soon as I'm gone from thee, that the spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whether I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he can't find thee, then he'll slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. He says, I don't know about this. Your pattern is to run and hide yourself so that nobody can find you. If I tell Ahab that i found you and then I can't put my hand on where you are, then I'm the one that'll pay the price for it. Then Obadiah tries to tell him, how much he does fear God and how he's on God's side. Verse 13, he said, Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. Well, that must have satisfied Obadiah, because it says he went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went, uh, went to meet Elijah. And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Like it's all Elijah's fault. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and has followed Balaam. Now, therefore, send and gather unto me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, that's 850 false prophets, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. Folks, I have no idea why Ahab's doing this. We certainly know the end of the story. He plays right into God's hands, and the great challenge takes place between Baal and and the God of Israel. But it would make more sense for Ahab if he really thought Elijah was the problem. It would make more sense for Elijah just to kill uh, for Ahab just to kill him there, with the one exception, and this is probably the reason why it takes place in a different way. Remember, Ahab said it wouldn't rain till I said so. Well, if he ain't saying so. Then we've got more of this to go. Maybe that's what spared Elijah's life. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto the people and said, How long haul she between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And call call you on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made, and it came to pass at noon, That Elijah mocked them and said cry aloud for he is a God. Either he's talking or he is pursuing or he's in a journey or peradventure he sleeps and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. I want you to notice it says as they were wont to do or it was after their manner. Folks all this cutting stuff that goes on with teenagers the Bible tells you where that comes from. The devil's crazy. First he talks you into serving him. And then he tries to destroy your life. For doing what he tried to get you to do. And it came to pass. When midday was past, And they prophesied until the time of the offering. Of the evening sacrifice. That there was neither voice. Nor any answer. Nor any that regarded. Where it says they prophesied until the time of the offering. That must mean that they're. Uh, even though they don't get any results with Baal bringing fire down uh, and accepting the sacrifice, somewhere along the way, these prophets of Baal start saying, here's when it'll happen. We've got inside information now. We've got a word from Baal. It'll happen at the time of the afternoon or the evening sacrifice. Of course, they're lying. They haven't heard anything from Baal because Baal doesn't speak. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. One thing let me uh, mention about these 12 stones that he sets up. At this point in time, the, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel have been divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom takes the name of Israel, and the southern king is the, takes the name of Judah. Ten and a half tribes are a part of the northern kingdom, and one and a half tribes are a part of the southern kingdom, or what's known as the nation of Judah. But God treats them all equally and as they're still as if they were still united so with the stones he built an altar in the name of the lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed and he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood and he said do it the second time and they did it the second time and he said, do it the third time, and they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and, he, and filled, he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Folks, this is one of the all-time great prayers. There's a couple of prayers in the Old Testament that just should be marked and kept up with because of the thrilling nature. Second Chronicles chapter 20 is another one where the people start praying, when they're surrounded by the five enemy armies. But here's here's one for the ages. Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that these people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. I'm not sure how this would rate on eloquence. But one thing I do know for sure is it's certainly not a long prayer. He gets right to the point. He wants three things. Show that you're God in Israel. Show that I'm your servant. And show that I've done these things at your word. That's a good one to keep handy. When we come upon situations that are beyond us, too. Verse 38 Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Folks, there are several times in the Old Testament where it tells us that God answered by fire, and there are several places. Uh, that we know that the, the, the tradition of the Jews uh, included the fire falling from heaven to s- consume the sacrifice. It was a sign that God had accepted the sacrifice being made as worthy. I don't want to make it sound like it's an everyday thing, but it's not a real common thing if you keep up with what the, the Old Testament records about God's interaction with his people. And because of that, it's probable that the, tongue, the cloven tongues of fire that fell on the 120 when they were filled with the Holy Ghost was the same type of thing. It wasn't a fire that consumed anything or anybody in Acts chapter 2. But it was a sign to the Jews that had gathered there for the, gathered in Jerusalem for the, peace of, the Feast of Pentecost. It was a sign to them that this was a, uh, an acceptable sacrifice unto God. Otherwise, what are the cloven tongues about? The Bible doesn't give us any information about it. It doesn't say that it it was something that was out of the ordinary or unique or something that blew the people away. It certainly wasn't anything that uh, uh, Peter, in his sermon about what this is, it certainly wasn't included in any of that. Again, I don't want to make it sound like it was an everyday occurrence, but it was not an un. un a non-understandable thing for the Jews that are used to and accustomed to the history of God accepting the sacrifices. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal, that's 450 of them, and let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, And slew them there. Now if this is to be accepted literally. He's the one that killed them all. We don't see that he delegated it to anybody else. There doesn't seem to be anybody else on his side. Until after the thing. After the contest is finished. But the implication again. If we take it literally. The implication is. Or the statement is. That Elijah did the killing of those 450 prophets on his own. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of an abundance of rain. So, Abraham, Abraham, Ahab, excuse me, so Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. He goes back up the mountain. And he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. So this guy's running back and forth. From the lookout point back to Elijah to tell him he hadn't seen anything. But it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there arises a, a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop me not, or stop thee not. In other words, he's saying, You better get to shelter because the rain that's coming is gonna would, would swamp you and sweep you away. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Notice verse 46. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. In other words, it's saying that Elijah outran the the king's chariot. He's still operating under the power of the Holy Ghost. This still has everything to do with the contest that was upon the mountain where God answered by fire. All of these are uh, ancillary or additional parts of the contest that's just been completed. Chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and withal how he had slain all the prophets with his sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying so let the gods do to me. And more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, she's she's saying, I'll make sure your head's cut off just like you cut the heads off of the prophets of Baal. Now, the reason for that certainly is because she was working in concert with the prophets of Baal so that they would say whatever she wanted them to say so that she could have have an instrumental part in keeping control or having control over the people. Verse 3, And when he saw that, when Elijah saw that, when he heard and found out what Jezebel had said, when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Elijah's running again, but he's not running with the hand of the Lord on him. Now, folks, can you imagine the physical danger that he was in just showing himself to Ahab, but more importantly, calling all of Israel together at Mount Carmel for this contest? If this thing doesn't go right, his death is certain. Now, he didn't shy away from that in the contest. He didn't shy away from the possibility or the threat of death concerning the contest. Because he's got the word of the Lord for that. Remember his prayer. Lord, show show that you're the God in Israel, that I'm your servant, and that I've done all these things at thy word. I think we miss out on what would certainly have been an interesting happening, an interesting event to find out what Elijah or what God would have told Elijah to do if he then prayed and said, okay, now what? I've done what you told me to do with the contest. We've, I've helped you prove that you're the God of Israel. What now? But instead, he starts running in the flesh. He's running for fear of his life. Now, I don't blame him for being afraid, but with all the things he's seen God do and all the things that have been recorded about what took place with, through and by his servants to the Lord service to the Lord i would have been interested to find out what God would have told him to do next one thing that's interesting is that elijah is the one that james in james chapter 5 verse 17 i believe it is Elijah is used as an example of being like us. James says that Elijah was a man of like passions or emotions as us, and he prayed earnestly, and it didn't rain by the space of three and a half years. Then he prayed again, and it rained in abundance, just as this story has related. God's not looking for everything to be just right. He's just looking for us to be open and to find out his will. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. Brother Hagin used to say about this verse of scripture, if Elijah really wanted to die, all he had to do is stay where he was. And Jezebel would have taken care of that. But Elijah didn't want to die any more than we have wanted to die when we've said stupid things like that to God too. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights into Horeb, the mountain of God. Folks, there is always, at the end of a a, a great spiritual test or a great spiritual battle, there is always the opportunity to become disheartened. Long-lasting tests or great battles As Wigglesworth said, great faith comes out of great battles. Great faith comes out of great tests. Anytime you and I find ourselves into a long-running test or uh, some kind of great temptation or great circumstance where we're having to stand in faith and trust God's Word when the situation looks and, and seems to be hopeless, that wears on you after a while. Now Elijah was certainly strong enough to see it through. But at the end of every great test there is at least the possibility of the temptation for a great letdown. Now notice how God provides for him this time. He sends an angel of the Lord to feed this guy on two different occasions. Two different meals. Elijah just wants to sleep. Again, fatigue is one of the things that we might be subject to at the end of a great test or a great victory or a great battle, however you want to look at it. So he slept and he ate. And that was God's plan for him. Now he moves. He moves into Mount Horeb. Now Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's the same place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And there's a cave at the top of Mount Sinai. And this is Elijah's cave. This is the place where Elijah goes. So he came there unto the cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him. And he said unto him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, folks, there's several ways that we can take that. We can take it as a, a real legitimate question where God is asking Elijah, for what purpose are you here? He's not there because God sent him there. And so when he asks him, and he'll ask him this again, what are you doing here? What is your purpose in being here? He said, and this is the same answer he gives the second time that God asked him in a few verses down. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, folks, remember when Obadiah found Elijah, or Elijah appeared, uh, showed himself to Obadiah and said, Go tell Ahab. He knows from Obadiah, if he didn't know ahead of time, he knows from Obadiah that there's a hundred prophets two groups of 50 that had been hidden away in the caves by Obadiah, and he's been taking care of them from the king's table. So for Elijah to say, I'm the only one that's left, he knows he's not the only one that's left, which means he's having a pity party. And notice the way he says it. He says, I, even I, am jealous for the Lord thy God. I'm the only one that's done right. I'm all alone. And the implication is there that God hadn't done it right by him either. And the Lord said to him, verse 11 Go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. And behold, behold the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Now, folks, what kind of wind breaks rocks? We've seen the devastation of Category 4 and Category 5 hurricanes, and it is terrible. But I have in in the, the greatest and strongest hurricanes or tornadoes known to man, there's no rock breaking. It may toss boats around, but what kind of strong wind breaks rock? God seems to be making a point here. So the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and brake in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Now we certainly know that the Lord caused the wind. So when it says the Lord's not in the wind, it's not saying the wind wasn't of God. It's saying the voice of God was not in the spectacular, even the miraculous event that he's just witnessed. Now since God is trying to make known to him how his voice comes or doesn't come. That's an indication to me, at least a possible indication, that God's saying, you don't have any business being here because I didn't bring you here. So after the wind, it says there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Again, the same thing. It doesn't mean God didn't cause the earthquake. He did. He's trying to get Elijah's attention. But where it says he's not in the earthquake, it simply means his direction or his voice isn't through the spectacular event or the circumstance there either. In other words, God doesn't talk through strong winds and earthquakes. If he didn't talk through strong winds and earthquakes in the Old Testament, then he doesn't talk through strong winds and earthquakes in the New Testament. So anytime you see somebody saying that one of these hurricanes, the devastation of one of these hurricanes or terrible earthquake results or whatever is the hand of God or the judgment of God on somebody or some city or something, that's not how God talks. Verse 12, and after the earthquake there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. He caused the fire, but he doesn't speak to the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice, and it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? After God demonstrates that he doesn't speak through the circumstance, that would also mean that God doesn't speak through Ahab and Jezebel's threat against Elijah's life. after using Elijah in such a tremendous way, Elijah, who knew the voice of the Lord and said that the fire falling down from heaven to consume the sacrifice was proof that he had done these things at the Word of God. Well, he has to know the Word of God if he's going to act on it and obey it, doesn't he? But now he's taken away from one of the greatest works of the Holy Ghost and that is to be for us to be led by his spirit so Elijah's up in the mountain second time what are you doing here Elijah and he said still the same answer he used before I have been very jealous for the Lord of God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword and I even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu the son of Nimshi shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of some place shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Now he's giving him an instruction on what to do. And probably would have been the same instructions if he had sought the Lord first without running from Jezebel. But verse 18. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel. All the knees which have not bowed unto Baal. And every mouth which has not kissed him. what I want to finish with tonight folks is that even though Elijah did not seek the direction of the Lord about what to do next but instead gets in the flesh yields to fear and runs away from Jezebel trying to save his own life one of the things that he considers to be the tragedy of the situation he's in is that in his mind, he's the only one left. But what do you think it did to him when God told him, I've got 7,000 that aren't worshiping Baal and haven't bowed their knee to him? What was the point in God telling him that? It's obviously a gift of the Spirit's divine revelation. But what was the point in God telling him that? He restored his hope. See, the problem with Elijah running from Jezebel isn't that he yielded to his emotions. It's that what happened, again, I think it probably had a lot to do with being on the tail end of this great conflict, this great test between Baal and God. But he lost hope. When God asked him twice, what are you doing here? For what purpose are you here? The only reason he was there is because he had lost hope. But God restored that to him. Folks, you see over and over and over again in Scripture where people are in dire situations, they're at the point of death perhaps, and one word, one little thing is told them, and it restores their hope. Now remember, remember, faith is the substance of things hoped for. If you lose your hope, you lose faith. Hope is of vital importance. It's a poor receiver. And a lot of times we speak mostly of, of hope as being something that is looking for God to do something in the future when faith says, I have it now, it's mine. But we have to cherish the hope that we have. We have to protect that hope because if the devil can't keep us from speaking words of faith if he wears us down and removes our hope then he stalls us out this is another thing that God did with Abraham remember Abraham was 99 years old and God appeared to him the last time God appeared to him before his son was born is he asked him a question He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? He said, this time next year, you'll have this son. But remember, Sarah laughed when she was listening in. And God asked him the simple question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Remember in Romans chapter 4, it says that Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. That verse of scripture in Romans chapter, 12, uh, Romans chapter 4 about verse 20. Was where he regained or was the proof that he regained his hope back. He had lost it over 25 years. Again it's time. The passage of time can wear us down. Rob promised the vision that we once had. The recognition that, of what we knew God wanted us to do. And if the devil can rob us of that hope. He can stall us out in faith. Same thing happened with Paul on the ship. On his way to Rome. Remember he told the people. That he perceived in his spirit that there was, they would run into trouble. But the centurion believed the ship, on, the ship masters more than Paul. But after having been at sea for a couple of weeks in an unbelievable storm that even these hardened sailors were losing hope over, remember the angel of the Lord appeared to him at night. He said, fear not, Paul, for you must be brought before Caesar. He says, I've given you the lives of everyone on this ship. So Paul responded to the people that were ready to jump ship do anything they could do to try to escape this storm. Paul said I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. The word of the Lord doesn't just inspire faith but it also renews hope. Let's pray. Oh Father we thank you so much For the wisdom of God, the mercy of God, that enables us to hear from the Holy Ghost. Holy Spirit, there may be people here tonight that have lost their hope. I pray that you would manifest yourself unto them. Not through circumstance, not through the wind, the earthquake, or the fire. But the still small voice, the inward witness. Renew the hope of those that have lost it, Father. And strengthen us all with might by your Spirit in our inner man. That Christ may abide with us through faith. And that we might comprehend the length and depth and breadth and height of the love of God. We thank you, Father. You and only you know how best to minister to your children.